Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Charlene Goff. This week, we look at the European Union plan for enacting the Basel III capital requirements into law. I think it's more likely the mid-sized banks that are going to face some trouble in meeting these requirements. And also the community banks will be given more time, but they have to restructure their capital rather significantly because they don't have common equity. They have these participation shares and other national arrangements that don't quite fit under the directive. We'll discuss how European investment banks look set to report falls in trading revenues in the quarterly reports this week. It's really going to be a mixed bag, but I make my prediction. We will see Deutsche have a better than expected quarter in investment banking, and we'll see Credit Suisse and UBS probably with a slightly worse than expected. And we'll take another look at the auctions for Northern Rock and the branches being sold by Lloyd's Banking Groups, which are both heating up this week. There seems to be a tremendous amount of confusion over how many formal bids we have submitted for the Lloyds branches. I saw three on Friday and three over the weekend, and then two, but now I understand it's back to three. Joining me this week is the FT's investment banking correspondent, Megan Murphy, and chief regulation correspondent, Brooke Masters. Let's start the show with stateside. This week, the U.S. banking update comes from Tom Braithwaite. Over to you, Tom. Thank you, Charlene. Last week was topsy-turvy for Wall Street earnings with the mighty Goldman Sachs falling short of market expectations and Morgan Stanley enjoying its strongest one-day share performance in two years after its results beat analyst estimates. Apart from earnings, we saw three former Credit Suisse bankers charged with conspiring to defraud the U.S., which is part of a broader crackdown on tax evasion that has implications for every bank outside America. First to Goldman. The bank has been mired in legal and regulatory difficulties for two years now, but, and some people say because, it came out of the financial crisis in better shape than its peers, quickly shrugging off the turmoil of 2008. But second quarter earnings last week disappointed, and for once it was Goldman's famed fixed income trading division that fell short. David Vinier, the CFO, acknowledged that had been underperformance, but said this was because the bank had deliberately reduced its risk exposure during a febrile period in the markets, particularly the macroeconomic difficulties from Europe. Morgan Stanley, on the other hand, whose fixed income division has been a problem for a long time, actually beat expectations and enjoyed that stellar share price rise. While its fixed income trading revenue fell 10% to $2.1 billion, the decline was less severe than Goldman. Its results also benefited from gains on hedges against its exposure to bond insurers. I tried to get Ruth Porat, Morgan Stanley's CFO, to say Goldman had been wimps on its risk appetite, but unsurprisingly, uh, she wouldn't play ball. She said average value risk did increase at Morgan Stanley, 
but was keen to stress it bounced around and there's no strategic upswing in Morgan Stanley's risk exposure. The US, as you may have heard, is quite strapped for cash at the moment, and so it's perhaps no surprise that it's continuing an aggressive enforcement strategy against alleged tax evaders. The latest twist this week was the indictment of four people, three of them ex-Credit Suisse bankers, accused of helping American clients hide their accounts from the Internal Revenue Service. UBS, Credit Suisse's large rival, settled with US authorities a couple of years ago for $780 million related to similar charges. And Credit Suisse has now been told that it, as well as its former staff, is under investigation. And we wait to see whether there will be a huge settlement or a steady drip of legal action. Back to the studio in London. Thank you, Tom. Let's start the show with the latest on the new capital requirements for banks. And last week we saw the European Commission unveil the draft of the new capital requirements directive, which enshrines the global Basel III rules into law. The European Commission said that banks would have to raise as much as 460 billion euros of capital by 2019 or cut back their balance sheets. Now, Brooke, that sounds like a huge number. What kind of impact will that have across Europe? It is a very big number. It's Basically, for the big banks, means they have to increase their capital by a third or cut back their lending or at least get rid of risky assets. There's a sense, however, that they have till 2019 to do it. And there will be some cutting back of things like structured products, which carry very heavy capital requirements. So it's probably not appalling, although certainly quite demanding. And it is very tricky for Europe because European businesses are more dependent on direct bank lending than those in the U.S., where People can go to the bond markets with relatively junky companies. Here, small and mid-sized companies really have no other choice but the banks. Right. And do we get the impression that this is going to be the trigger for another wave of capital raisings across some of Europe's biggest banks? Or have we seen that happen already? I think most of the very big, strong banks are probably in okay shape, with the possible exception of Unicredit and possibly Deutsche Bank, which is also facing a surcharge on top of its capital requirements. I think it's more likely the mid-sized banks that are going to face some trouble in meeting these requirements. And also the community banks will be given more time, but they have to restructure their capital rather significantly because they don't have common equity. They have these participation shares and other national arrangements that don't quite fit under the directive. And this is another sign of how Europe is taking the lead on all this implementation of these new rules. I mean, is this creating more of a backlash from the UK and other European states that are worried about the potential unlevel playing field between them and the rest of the world? There's actually a very big backlash in the UK, but it's from a slightly different perspective. What Europe is doing is really trying to harmonize from the center and say, everyone's going to have the same rules, we're going to have a real single market. And what that may do is eliminate the UK's ability to gold plate unless the regulations are written very carefully. And there is a big fight, and the Treasury is quite worried that it will limit the ability of both the new financial policy committee that's supposed to spot and deflate bubbles and the ability of the Independent Commission on Banking to do UK-tailored rules. And so that's going to be one of the fights that's going to probably rage on in the next few months. And given that the recovery at the moment is so volatile, given, you know, with the sovereign debt crisis that's still sweeping through Europe, I mean, is there a sense that we've just got to tread carefully when it comes to implementing these? Or you could risk potentially reigning in lending, which is one thing that we really don't want to happen right now. 
There definitely is that sense. Um, the timetables for the implementation of this thing are incredibly extended. And if anything, there's even more squishiness in this draft than there is in the Basel rules. It's very clear that Commissioner Michel Barnier, who's in charge of this project, is very conscious that the banks may need more time. And they've written a number of outs that would allow them to extend the timetable well into the 2020s. Just a final point on this that I thought was interesting. I mean, they're going to police this with fines, I think they said last week, on the banks that don't come up to scratch on these new rules. Was that quite alarming for the banks? You know, frankly, if you don't meet your capital requirements, the market is not going to invest in you. This is one of those things for any large public institution, the fines are pointless. I mean, they they have so, so many bigger problems if they can't meet these requirements. It might make sense, I suppose, that if there are countries where the regulator is not very good, and not very strong, and the small and medium-sized banks that don't depend on public investors start to ignore these rules, then the fines could be meaningful. But you're not going to see the FSA or its successors fining Lloyds. I mean, if it got to that point, we have far worse problems. Brooke, thanks very much. We're now going to move on to our second topic for today, which is the European banking results, which are coming up this week. Megan, you've been looking closely at these in the past days, and I think we're expecting something of a mixed picture to emerge over the next few days. Yeah, I think it is going to be a real mixed bag. Tomorrow we kick off with UBS, the Swiss Group, and Deutsche Bank, the German bank, followed on Thursday by Credit Suisse, and then following the following week with the French banks and with the UK banks. In investment banking, it really has been a mixed picture. We've seen stronger activity in the M&A markets and in debt and equity underwriting fees for banks. So that set investment banking fees up about 26% for the first half of the year in Europe. But the flip side of that is the sovereign debt crisis and concerns over still uncertain macroeconomic outlook has led clients to de-risk and also not be as active trading in general. So therefore, banks sort of largest component of revenue since the crisis, which has been fixed income trading, revenues were sharply down in the second quarter compared to the first quarter at the U.S. banks, Goldman Sachs stunned Wall Street with a 63% plunge in their fixing income currency and commodities revenues in the second quarter. I don't think we'll see as sharp as falls in the European banks, but analysts have been pointing to Credit Suisse and Barcap as two of the banks that could have been most hit by this. Interestingly, Goldman said the reason for such a sharp decline in FIC between Q1, which is traditionally strong, and Q2 was that they misjudged their risk positions in the market and they had sort of misallocated their own exposure and client exposure. And Credit Suisse, which also has since the crisis taken a much more cautious approach in an effort to sort of smooth out the volatility in their investment banking business is actually potentially one of the most exposed to a fall if they too haven't gotten their risk alignment right and have actually not taken as much risk as they should have to reap higher returns. So it's that differing approach to investment banking, which makes it a fascinating industry right now. You talked a lot about the fixed side of the business. What about other sides of the business, M&A, for example? People have to remember that although we think of M&A and, and debt and equity underwriting as the big headline things, IPOs, deals, uh, as what investment banks do, at most investment banks, it only makes up about a quarter of their revenues. So the rest of that being made from fixed income trading and equities. Equities has been pretty flat so far, year on year and quarter on quarter. So we won't see much movement on that. But 
the thick moves really can be determinative. Now, look at the bank earnings. It's very different to make predictions across the board. And that's because the universal banks, Deutsche, UBS, Credit Suisse, Barclays, RBS, you know, they have huge components of their business outside of investment banking. You know, UBS and Credit Suisse, their fortunes this quarter will probably be made or lost on actually their huge wealth management arms. You know, Credit Suisse has gained huge market share in private banking since the crisis. UBS has staunched outflows of over $100 billion since the crisis and has turned things around in this private bank. So we'll be really be looking at the private banking revenues at Deutsche. Obviously, we'll be looking for synergy costs in their retail acquisition of Postbank. We'll be looking at investment banking, which does make up 90% of their revenues, but we will be also looking at costs. There's always going to be one-off little things. It's really going to be a mixed bag, but I make my prediction. We will see Deutsche have a better than expected quarter in investment banking, and we'll see Credit Suisse and UBS probably with a slightly worse than expected. And just quickly, I mean, how could this pressure kind of manifest itself in, you know, kind of action banks are taking to cut costs? I mean, I think we're expecting some quite severe staff cuts this week. The figure of 5,000 has been used to UBS. I think that figure is probably slightly inflated, but not that vastly inflated. Broken down across the group, I think that's going to be about maybe a little bit less than 1,000 people in their investment banking unit, maybe about 700 to 800 the rest will be back office across the whole. I mean, remember, UBS has 65,000 people. We've already started to see the numbers. Credit Suisse has paired about 700 people in investment banking. They have way too many people for the new environment. And the only way to meet their ambitious profit targets is to cut costs. And the easiest way to cut costs in investment banking is to cut people. And what will be interesting to see in the months and years to come is whether investment banks ever move to a model of instead of cutting people is to cut pay. I think that's going to be a trend that we see come through as well the following week when we come into the UK bank results. I know Lloyd's said last month that it was going to cut as many as 15,000 jobs, which is a a huge number in in the UK. And that brings us on to our third topic today, which is more progress that's been made in the two auctions of portfolio branches being sold by Lloyd's Banking Group and also the sale of Northern Rock, which has been coming for a long time now and it's gearing up this week with first round bids due in by the end of the week. Interestingly, it emerged over the weekend that Virgin Money, Richard Branson's financial services arm, is now putting all its efforts into a bid for Northern Rock. It did hope that it could maybe get hold of the Lloyds branches. That obviously would give it a much bigger banking presence. But it it seems now that Sir Richard thinks that Lloyds might be too big a deal for Virgin to do at this stage. And it's now focusing its attention just on Northern Rock. So I think it would have a pretty good chance at Northern Rock. I know that we expect a couple of the building societies to come in for that as well, but it would be tricky for them to raise the capital. We think private equity could be in there. But Megan, I know this is slightly away from your investment banking world, but who would you think would have the best chance of getting hold of some of these assets? Well, what I was really interested in and what I was going to ask you about is also there seems to be a tremendous amount of confusion over how many formal bids we have submitted for the Lloyds branches. I saw three on Friday and three over the weekend, and then two, but now I understand it. it's back to three. So what I was curious, too, is, is whether we have actually reached resolution on how many people have actually set in real proper bids for these. Basically, it's always been three, but the aggressive approach that Virgin seemed to have for Lloyd's made people presume that they were one of the three. Now, what I discovered yesterday was that there are indeed three, but Virgin's not among them. So the firm bids on the table are from MBNK, the new venture set up by Lord Levine, the cooperative, the mutually owned UK bank, and a US private equity firm. But it seems really to be between the two bids, co-op and MBNK. 
both of which have their problems. Interesting story, too, with the co-op last week and um, the chief executive leaving. Were, any, were these related in any way? I think it was definitely a factor. I mean, we had the chief executive of co-op came in two years ago when it acquired Britannia Building Society, and he really wanted to see through that integration and then go. He was fairly lukewarm on the idea of taking on another huge acquisition, something that could tie him in for another sort of five years. So I think he thought he would get out now. On Friday, the people we were talking to who were close to him were saying that there was quite an interesting dynamic emerging between the financial services arm and the kind of broader co-op, which has a fairly new chief executive and he's taking a much more sort of active role in the bank. And I think the relations there were becoming quite strained with them sort of pulling in different directions. So they're on the hunt for a new chief executive, it seems that they may not be able to get someone in at this stage with the big uncertainty of whether or not they're going to win Lloyd. So they might wait to see how they sort of fare in that auction before they bring someone new in there. I think just coming back to that question, when we look at the bidders, I mean, the private equity group in the U.S., I have a suspicion as to who that might be, but uh, MBNK, I mean, we've always just thought there were so many issues with them being able to get these assets. Yeah. With the tough capital requirements, exactly. because if you're new and you don't have a bank that already exists, your requirements go up dramatically. One of the calculations is your track record. Yeah. And so a straight private equity group, it's hard to imagine that they can do this unless they also have a partnership or a plan to buy something else that exists. Exactly. Well, they may be working with a partner. We're, as you say, we've got our suspicions who it is, and um, we'll bring you more news on that when we have it. But that's all we have time for today. All that's left is to thank Megan and Brooke in the studio in London and Tom in New York. Banking Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.